Welcome to the program, Innovations in Regenerative Medicine Therapy for Severe Burns and Other Complex Skin Defects. This program is supported by an educational grant from Mallinckrodt and provided by North American Center for Continuing Medical Education. I'm Dr. Angela Gibson, an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin Burns Center. Throughout this webcast, I will be joined by Dr. Jeffrey Carter, Associate Professor of Surgery at Louisiana State University School of Medicine, and Dr. Jeffrey Litt, Assistant Professor of Surgery in Bern and Bern Program Manager at the University of Missouri. Throughout this webcast, you will see footage taken from live proceedings at the Symposium on Advanced Wound Care Fall Meeting. This webcast will cover the following objectives. Investigate potential limitations of current standard of care for deep burn injuries and complex skin wounds with substantial loss of dermis. Explore research, science, and clinical evidence surrounding the evolution of tissue engineering and its impact on burn care. And review challenging cases using a regenerative medicine approach to treating deep partial thickness burns. So let's begin with the early phase of care. We'll start with injury assessment, as this is the most important part to determine the treatment plan for the wound. Basically, the depth of the wound will tell us whether or not the patient will need surgery or not. And we do this mostly by visual assessment. We think if the wound heals within three weeks, that it should just be allowed to heal in and doesn't need surgery. However, we found that this visual assessment improves over time. So it's a balancing act between early excision and grafting, which has the benefits of decreased inflammation, decreased length of stay, and decreased scarring, with lost regenerative potential. And, and that would mean that we would excise it burn that would otherwise have healed in. And the problem with this is that the donor site where we take the skin from to skin graft has really high morbidity, as you can see here with this hypertrophic scarring. We performed a survey of burn surgeons across the North America and found that 77% of burn surgeons use clinical judgment only to determine burn depth. However, there are multiple other ways to do this that are either currently available or undergoing uh, development. And these include detecting tissue chromophore changes, perfusion changes, and tissue architecture changes. I'm gonna review some of the current literature on these various techniques. The first study is a prospective comparative evaluation of laser Doppler imaging and thermal in, Im, imaging in the assessment of burn depth. This study looked at 16 patients with 52 regions of interest. They looked at the wound on days one and three, and the question was whether or not it would heal within that three weeks. They compared laser Doppler imaging, thermal imaging, and clinical photo. What they found was that LDI had longer acquisition times than, norm, than thermal, the LDI was more accurate than thermal and photo, and that this accuracy increased from day three, uh, more so than day one. They also found that thermal imaging had no advantage over photo. What was really interesting is that the real-time visual evaluation by the on-call surgeon at day one was actually the best. Another study that used a pig model compared spatial frequency domain imaging and laser speckle imaging with thermal imaging for the assessment of burn depth. They looked using pigs, as I mentioned, at various depths of burns at both 24 hours after injury and 72 hours after injury. The laser speckle imaging and thermal imaging looks at perfusion and the spatial, fre spatial frequency domain imaging looks at chromophore tissue structure changes. They found that the spatial frequency domain imaging was the only modality that had diagnostic accuracy higher than clinical assessment, and that this uh, um, 
improved accuracy actually diminished at 72 hours. They posited that this, because the spatial frequency domain imaging detects structural changes, such as coagulated collagen, this may be occurring earlier within hours than the perfusion changes, and that's why it may be more accurate earlier. Another study which looked at uh, the ability of various users to use this type of technology uh, was this intra-observer reliability of laser speckle contrast imaging in the assessment of burn depth. This study looked at plastic surgeons, nurses, and residents, and had them look at burns both early time points and late time points. They evaluated nine scalds and one contact burn. What they found was that perfusion is an objective measure. They also found that the more experience that you have, the less reliable these additional tools become. Basically, the fact was, if you are a very experienced surgeon, you don't trust these tools. You trust your eye and your years of experience. They felt that these were most helpful with, in those, pa- those people with little experience. And they also found that their contact burn had anomalous results using their perfusion formula. And so that begs the question of this could be used, if this technique could be used for various different mechanisms of burn. Finally, uh, a newer uh, mode of evaluation is indocyanine green for looking at burn depth. Now, indocyanine green is a very old dye and has been used as a microperfusion uh, adjunct for a long time in surgical procedures. However, this study looked at 30 patients uh, with indeterminate depth burn, those real burns that make it really difficult to know if it's going to heal within the three weeks. They looked at various mechanisms of burn, including flame, scald, contact, and electrical burn. They compared clinical, indocyanine green, and histology results. And they looked at these burns anywhere from two to five days after injury. What they found was that accuracy was 100% in ICG compared to 50% in clinical assessment. They did note, though, that ICG has multiple limitations. Uh, One big limitation is that skin with pigment, uh, including uh, melanin, interferes with the interpretation of the indocyanine green fluorescence. Additionally, because this is a measure of perfusion, there's a very and a short uh, time of diffusion of endocyanine green. You are not able to do this in a very large burn. It's limited to very small areas. So in any technology that you have many modalities available without one single modality that is identified as the ideal one, I would say that the jury is still out on what we should be using. This becomes most pertinent with the indeterminate depth burns uh, because we want to be able to do our surgery if we need to early on to avoid the complications. However, we don't want the lost regenerative potential. Finally, none of these tell us what constitutes reversible versus irreversible damage. And I would argue, as I mentioned before, the donor site does have a lot of morbidity. As you can see with this panel of pictures with this young child, uh, the donor site on the left side of his back is quite hyperpigmented even at post-op day 10 compared to the burn on the right side of his back that was allowed to heal in. This hyperpigmentation and elevation in the uh, donor site continued out till post-op day 60, whereas the burn that was allowed to heal in looks much more normalized to normal skin. Furthermore, all of these technologies have been initially tested in animal models, and I would argue that they may not be the most appropriate surrogate to test these new modalities. Uh, Some of these studies are done in pig models and others are done in mouse models. And as you can see in this histology comparison between mouse skin and human skin, there are vast anatomical differences uh, between these two uh, um, tissues, and therefore it is not totally clear that these are the best translationable models. 
So now we'll move on to uh, excision, and once you've determined the depth and determined that it needs to be excised, the goal of excision is to remove only non-viable tissue. Tangential excision was developed in the 1970s with the idea that leaving viable dermis behind is beneficial. Interestingly, in this survey that we sent out a few years ago, 20% of burn surgeons believe in excising until there is no dermis remaining. When queried about why they did this method of excision, they felt that it was faster to excise and it removes the risk of leaving non-viable tissue present. And leaving that non-viable tissue, would, uh, because of that, it would uh, impact the ability of the graft to take. So I would argue that we need better methods of removing non-viable tissue. The reason we, de- we need better ma- methods is because the tools that we have are quite archaic, and there's a lack of precision of excisional tools that can lead to the overexcision. As you can see, this picture at the top of the slide shows the first tangential excision of a deep partial thickness burn, and that removes approximately 500 microns of tissue. This becomes quite significant when we think about the average skin thickness of being 500 to 4,000 microns. Furthermore, we use our visual cues intraoperatively to determine the adequacy of excision, and that can also lead to overexcision, as demonstrated by this panel of pictures where the initial deep partial thickness burn underwent the first tangential excision in the middle frame, and that when we assessed the wound bed after excision, we saw thrombosed vessels and a lack of punctate bleeding and a lack of pearly dermis that led us to want to do a second tangential excision down to fat, as you can see in the picture. When we took this tissue back to the lab and just did histology on it with lactate dehydrogenase stain, which shows us uh, viable cells staining blue, you can see in the uh, tissue section here that only blue cells were at the um, inferior portions or the deep portions of the tissue, which uh, confirms our decision to do an excision. However, when we look at the tissue from the second tangential excision, which we clinically thought needed to be done, you can see there are viable cells throughout the tissue, which begs the question of whether that was really needed to be done or not. So let's continue exploring excision techniques with our live presentation and panel discussion from SAWC Fall. This review starts to question that, wondering if it's time to start putting down the knife. They review the uh, evolution of tools that we've used for surgical excision of burn wounds. um, There have been numerous things over the years, but really we haven't had anything new for quite some time. And there's really little level one evidence comparing excision tools. This uh, review actually looked at two randomized control trials and another randomized control trial with using either hydrodissecting tools or enzymatic debridement. And I would argue that the knife tools are tools of the past, while these newer um, methods may be the new frontier. So this paper was a systematic review of hydrosurgery tools, looking at hydrosurgery versus uh, tangential knife excision. They found that uh, there was longer excision times with hydrosurgery, especially in big areas, uh, the trunk burns, um, but it was shorter time for extremities, fingers, uh, head, and neck and that more healthy dermal preservation occurred with the hydrosurgery. You just have much more control over that. And there was no difference in healing time, graft take, and infection rate, because I think those are really broad stroke um, uh, outcomes. I would argue that there's a time and a place for using the hydrosurgery. This is a patient who had... uh, 
facial burns and other burns other places. We were taking him to the operating room to excise his hands, and he still had some areas on his face that weren't quite healing in, and so um, didn't want to excise and graft it because I knew it would heal in, in within enough time, so used the hydrodissection and placental membrane to enhance wound healing, and he healed up pretty fast without um, any scarring. So there's definitely soft tissue that I think is would be amenable to the hydrosurgery, but when you look at these big, deep, thick, leathery burns, that those are not amenable to hydrosurgery. So there's a place and a time for all of these technologies. Uh, another way is enzymatic debridement, and this study looked at... Um, four randomized controlled trials and some other lower-level evidence to um, see if uh, there was any benefit for the enzymatic debridement. And what they found was that there's reduced need to complete debridement, need for surgery, reduced burn excised area, uh, need for autograft, and reduced time for closure, and improved scar quality and pain. This uh, technology is undergoing phase three study in the U.S., and uh, the approval is expected by the end of 2020 for up to 30% burn. So I would argue that this may be our solution to determining the burn depth. If we don't need to um, even determine it, you just put this enzymatic debrider on there, and it tells you basically what's necrotic. It may also ameliorate burn progression if you're removing that necrotic tissue immediately upon um, uh, upon injury and upon evaluation, maybe you're uh, pr- uh, stopping some of that burn progression. And it may also allow the use of skin substitutes rather than going just to skin grafting. So really, excision is just about a Goldilocks phenomenon where you want to have just the right amount of dermis excised. Again, it's that balance between early excision and grafting and loss regenerative potential. And then in those patients um, where they need a little additional, you know, they have no dermis left and you need to fill that void, um, dermal substitutes can come into play. Uh, an ideal substitute fully replaces the functions of the dermis. I don't know that we have that completely yet, but that would be the hope. It would have host tolerance, integrate fully, be biodegradable, and have low risk of infection and disease transmission. Um, there's, you know, one step versus two step means you can graft right on top of your dermal uh, substitute versus needing to have the dermal substitute uh, integrate and then graft on top of it at a later time. So basically what a dermal substitute is, is it provides a scaffold for the patient's own cells to grow in there, regenerating a neodermis. It would permit the use of a thinner split thickness skin graft, which would in turn decrease donor site morbidity and allow faster healing. However, um, really, the, the, I think the big uh, push for these dermal substitutes are in those big burn patients where you don't have enough skin to graft them right away, and you need to get that uh, burn off and get them covered with something. So there's a lot of dermal substitutes available. There's natural, artificial, and synthetic materials. When you have something uh, that has so many options, it usually means that there's no ideal product available. Just go over one review article. Um, the review articles on dermal substitutes are pretty poor, the systematic reviews, because the sample size of all these trials are very small, and they usually have poor methodology. It's difficult to do these studies well in burn patients. But it compared various dermal substitutes to split thickness uh, with split thickness skin graft afterwards compared to uh, grafting alone. And what they found that there was no difference in scar quality and graft take, faster healing, obviously with a thinner donor site, and that the infection rates using some of these dermal substitutes depended on the center that was using it, which really underscored the importance of training and using of these using these substitutes for the success of the graft take. 
because we've seen these problems where you have infection or hematoma collection and, and you have much greater problems here. So I think um, you got to know the limitations of these products and uh, how to use them well and what patients are the right patients to choose them on. We'll pass it off to Dr. Carter. Okay. I get the fun part of doing wound closure. <clears throat> and you know, the skin is this sacred chalice that protects you from 37.2 times 10 to the 13th bacteria that cover you. And it's a little bit like having a hole in your roof. You know, when you have a problem, you need to get it fixed. And so, you know, to uh, Dr. Gibson's point, these delays are very real. And uh, what happens when we have delays in getting the wounds closed is, number, number one, you actually have this rate of burn wound sepsis, where the patient can actually be septic simply from a small wound. It does not require a large wound. Also, we have increased rates of infections. Unfortunately, burn units have one of the higher rates of infections. Part of that has to do with the length of stay. And if we fail to have the wound closed within three weeks, we look at a higher rate of hypertrophic scar. So it's not only can the wound heal, it's also how functional is it. So I've put in a few videos for you to see that. And then from the patient's perspective also, we're looking at pain and distress, like additional procedures, additional surgeries, additional dressing changes. So we're in a race to get the wound closed in under three weeks and to have a functional scar after this is over. And then when we see those increased length of stays, that's really when our administrators get on to us and ask us, what, what can you do to reduce this? And so, you know, in the early 19, excuse me, in the late 1970s, early excision and grafting became really a standard of care. And you know, so now you have the tarp on the roof here. And I'm from New Orleans, and occasionally we have a few storms, and we have tarps on roofs. And it, it became the standard for us for deep partial thickness and full thickness burn injuries. And what we found with that was that we had improving, uh, improved survival, reduced scarring, and then reduced risk of infection. So what you have right here on the left on top is a patient with a deep partial thickness burns. And what you're seeing in that video that's in the top right-hand corner is, uh, to Dr. Gibson's point, is a tangential excision. So what you're seeing is small amount of punctate bleeding. That is not a fascial excision. There's elements of reticular dermis that's left in place. And the bleeding is coming on and off because the tourniquet is turned on. So when the tourniquet's dropped, you see the bleeding coming back. So you have this well, very well-perfused wound bed. And then this is what it looks like when you have a two-to-one mesh graft about 14 days later. It goes on top of that. So let's talk for a second about this meshing and other burn wounds. Sometimes the wounds don't stop at the skin, though. So this is a patient who uh, uh, was found on a heater, passed out. And you can look at the picture in the middle, and you can tell, boy, that's a really deep burn wound. It goes all the way down to the humerus, and you can see how the humerus is rotating. The scapula has been resected. A great deal of muscle has been resected back there. Um, and we were actually able to salvage this using a combination of a rotational flap, dermal substitutes, and then a skin graft. In the, in the top right-hand corner, you see that she's been able to keep the arm. And in her reconstruction, she had a two-to-one mesh skin graft that was applied. Uh, we did incorporate hyperbaric with her, and mainly that's because she was neurovascularly intact, but she's right-hand dominant and has a child of CP and needed to, needed to keep that arm. So while she's not playing volleyball right now and she has limited abduction, those are things that we can address in the future as opposed to having to remove the arm earlier. Um, so let's take a second and talk about what those graphs are. There's full thickness and there's split thickness. And in full thickness, what we're trying to harvest is more complete thickness of the, derm of the skin that's, that's taken. And it's actually been studied best in pediatric hand burns, showing a decreased need for reconstruction that came out of California. More of what we're seeing is split thickness. Now, split thickness means we take a very thin layer. I always tell patients it's like mowing the grass. You just cut the grass short, it grows back, though. Um, and ironically, the thickness of a dollar bill is about the thickness of many grafts. It's about 10 to 12 thousandths of an inch. 
There's also epidermal autographs. Now, epidermal autographs are even thinner. They're usually eight thousandths or less, and they can be cultured or they can be harvested. So when they're harvested, it, it does require a little bit of technique behind that. But these can also be cultured, and I believe that Dr. Litt's going to talk about that. So moving forward with split-thickness skin grafts, they get meshed. They get these holes cut in them. And the first time you have a kid ask you, why do I look like an angry alligator, then it really kind of makes you wonder, why do we mesh skin? And is there something that's better than this? And what you're seeing in the bottom left-hand corner there is a mesher. There's crushing and non-crushing meshers, and that's cutting holes in it, which allows the skin to expand to cover a larger area. The ratios of those cuts change, and as you see, the diamond pattern in the, in the bottom right also changes. And essentially what you're doing is tricking the body, instead of having a large wound, to having a bunch of very small wounds. And all those little small little di diamond shapes are basically wounds that will heal from the edges in. Because skin has a tendency to heal by regeneration or contracture, and it's anywhere from 1 to 0.1 in, uh, millimeters per day in an acute wound. So if we can trick it into having a bunch of very small wounds with a graft that's, that's on a viable bed, then we can get closure of those diamond shapes, which are interstices, very quickly. Unfortunately, the measures don't actually give us what they're advertised. Meaning a four-to-one measure doesn't take 100 square centimeters and turn it into 400 square centimeters. And it's been one of the struggles that we've had, because now you're going to uh, have to take skin from the patient, which is one of the few times in surgery when we intentionally hurt a patient, we cause harm, we create a new wound in order to heal another wound. So moving forward, this is an example of a small burn wound on a patient's uh, wrist here, and you can... In, What's been applied to it is a 1 to 10,000 ratio of epinephrine solution. Uh, that's applied to help arrest hemorrhage. Your skin receives anywhere from 5 to 50% of your blood flow, your cardiac output per minute. And so even a small wound can cause extensive blood loss. Um, and this one, you see a couple of bovie strikes that uh, are on the hand just to dry it up. And then uh, you'll see this glue that's being sprayed. That glue is actually a fibrin and thrombin combination. And when it's aerosolized, it, form, it polymerizes, and it forms like an, an instant glue, or it's a biologic glue that affects the skin graft without any staples or stitches. We use, usually use a little bit of dermabond around the edges, and in this one, you notice it has very, very small cuts in it. That's actually a pie crust or a quarter to one measure. And this really just allows fluid to evacuate from behind it so that you don't have a seroma or a hematoma that builds up that then results in graft loss, but results in a very functional wound. So let's talk for a second about these donor sites. Donor sites are a major pain, source of pain and distress. When we talk to our patients after surgery, they'll say, you know, my wound doesn't hurt, but my donor site sure does. Well, isn't there another way to do this? And it does increase the burden of wound healing. If you have a patient with a 50% burn and you have a 2 to 1 or 3 to 1 measure and you harvest 25% of their skin, now they have a 75% open wound. It also increases the risk for infection and conversion. As you age, you have over 20 types of collagen, and, and that collagen deposition in your skin matures and changes and reorients. And at, at extremes of age, we can be at higher risk for a donor site converting into a full thickness injury. It's often the rate-determining step in large burns. When we get to these 70, 80, 90% burns, it really becomes difficult to get them closed because we run out of donor sites. And so commonly what we'll do is to harvest all the available skin, get as much of it closed as possible, come back and do it again. But dermis is derived from mesoderm, and it actually is a, a rate-limiting step in the sense that you can only harvest so many times. And then there's been a lot of studies trying to prove what's a better dressing for donor sites. What's a way that has no pain? And in truth, they all have pain associated with them. And we're now beginning to look at different dressings that might result in less pain. But probably the best thing would just be less donor site. 
And that's really where we get to in this slide here. And if you look back on the x-axis there, you see the decades as a progression. This slide was actually given to me by a friend and mentor, so I have to give him credit. Um, and it's, you can see how it's changed over the decades, how initially antibiotics came out, and you could see in the y-axis that burn size, survival increased. But then when early excision and grafting took, took hold in the late 1970s, we had a big improvement as we began to manage hypermetabolism and nutritional needs. We had a big improvement. But now you hit this current era where skin substitutes and regenerative medicine are really changing the game. So one example of this is uh, decreasing the donor sites. And so that can be done with cultured, scale, uh, cultured skin, and that was done with both allograft and autograft, and then using a, an autologous skin cell suspension. So let's break that down for a second. Autologous means it's coming from the own patient. It's just their skin. It's not muscle or anything else or bone. And, it's, and those cells are then placed in a suspension. And so the photo that you see on the right there is actually the patient has a deep partial thickness wound. The plastic sheeting underneath it helps capture some of those cells. And then the, the surgeon who's on the far right is actually spraying the cell solution in the operating room on the wound bed. There's also been development of tissue-engineered human, uh, human skin substitutes, which Dr. Litt's going to discuss. Good day. My name is Jeff Litt. I am the burn surgeon and burn director at University of Missouri MU Healthcare. Today I'm going to discuss the latest research and science on tissue engineering in burn care, and I'll continue exploring this topic alongside Drs. Carter and Gibson and their presentations during our live panel discussion. Well-known facts show that there are about 500,000 or so burns a year in the United States. About 40,000 or so require hospitalization, and by some estimates of those 40,000, about 20% require surgical therapy, often requiring skin graftage or skin substitute usage. The problem, of course, is donor site, and we've talked a little bit about that during our presentation. Um, some of the bioengineered products that may reduce our need for donor site include the usage of cultured epidermal autographs, which have been around a long time. These are sheets of cultured epidermis grown in vitro from an autologous small full thickness donor site and typically delivered within two to three weeks from receipt of sample that are used to cover large, greater than 30% TBSA deeper burns. The methodology is as shown. Uh, the biopsy is harvested, sent to the company. Uh, they expand the keratinocyte cell line, and then they're able to grow this out in sheets, which they then send back to the referring facility. The grafts are applied at the time of operation, typically in conjunction with some widely meshed split-thickness skin graft. About a week to 10 days later, the grafts are taken down very gently, typically in the operating room under very controlled circumstances, and one sees new skin typically at that point. The data supporting the usage of CEA has been around for a number of years. Uh, CEA itself was first described in 1975, first used in human uh, patients in 1981. The CEA approved it as a humanitarian use device in 2007, and then they revised their indication for CEA usage to include wording for pediatric patients. The initial study from the patient selection in 1989 to 1996 show a total of 550 patients, 200 of which were pediatric patients, with burn sizes nearly 70 degrees in size, along with a significant component of patients with inhalational injury. Uh, all patients, in terms of survival, had a survival of 87%. 
Um, and those with inhalation injury uh, had a survival of 81%, both of which are very high numbers. In the pediatric population, we have even higher numbers, 89% survival with 81% inhalation injury survival as well. So Epicel was con uh, contributive to that large survival number by closing wounds early. A further tracking registry from 2007 to 2015 look at 400 patients, and they had similar results with similar size burns. Treatment overview is as noted. The burns are cleaned and excised when the patient arrives. A biopsy is obtained typically within one or two days of the patient's uh, admission. And then the wounds are prepared as necessary while the epicel is being prepared by the company. The final wound bed is prepared uh, about one to two days before CEA placements. Um, and cultures are typically obtained to ensure that they are clean and non-colonized wounds. CEA is placed on the wound at the time of operation, followed uh, by usage of uh, sterile nylon net, absorbent gauze, and an outer layer of bulky dressing. These are typically changed about once a uh, shift or so, with areas uh, being allowed to dry out to uh, accelerate the epithelialization process. And then within seven to 10 days, the backing of the CEA is removed. Uh, and then after the CEA is proved to be successful, post-takedown air continues and long-term care begins, including usage of uh, scar manipulation techniques. I described a case that we uh, saw in my institution, a 59-year-old with a 60% burn from a boat explosion. She was initially evaluated as a level one uh, trauma, brought emergently to the operating room for line placement as well as our initial excision and escharotomy performance. And ultimately, she was excised completely within uh, several days and temporized with cadaveric allograft. Uh, this demonstrates the size and locations of her wounds along her upper body, along with both legs, and shows the lack of donor site availability given the large burn. Uh, on hospital day 30, after these stage procedures, she received her CEA, which were standards grafted to uh, her legs and bilateral, uh, her bilateral lower extremities as well as her torso, with usage of uh, widely meshed split thickness skin graft in a six to one mesh pattern. Uh, she was discharged from the hospital on uh, day 55 to rehab and then home about two weeks later, and she's been home since and has done exceptionally well. And this picture shows how well her leg wounds, which were the deepest of her wounds, have uh, closed and healed. And that was initially, uh, that was right prior to her discharge. The next uh, bioengineered tissue substitute I'll talk about is the autologous homologous skin construct. It's a human cellular and tissue-based product derived from the patient's own skin to regenerate full thickness functionally polarized skin with all of its layers, as well as with appendages, including glandular structures and hair follicles. Let's continue exploring regenerative medicine in burns with our live presentation and panel discussion from the SAWC fall meeting. So current approaches to skin generation are uh, basically bits and pieces. So taking uh, acellular, acellular products, or epidermal autologous products, but nothing that we have out there is able to do a full thickness skin reconstruction, regeneration, really. Um, and skin is a very complex organ. It's a very, you know, almost trilaminar in terms of the epidermis, the dermis, and the subcutaneous tissue, and they all kind of need each other to function maximally and to reduce the functional consequences of scarring. There are plenty of endogenous regenerative populations in the skin both along the hair follicles, along from the epidermis itself, and then the little reet appendages as well. 
problem with regeneration, regenerative medicine, though, is this tissue engineering, that it's a very complex process with signaling molecules and, and cells and different cells signaling different things at different times, and as well as the need for uh, appropriate scaffolding. So to really create a full thickness homologous skin construct, you need all three of those, or you're really just dealing with pieces, bits and pieces of the skin. So it gives you a minimally polarized functional unit, which is autologous because it's derived from the patient themselves. It's homologous. Um, decide to regenerate the tissue it's created from, and their process is such that it's minimally manipulated, and so it doesn't have a lot of additives, so to speak. Um, first evaluated in the swine model, full thickness skin defects were created in 12 Yorkshire female swine. This goes back to Dr. Gibson, that the swine is probably the closest we have to human skin um, without using human skin. And then wounds were followed with various uh, digital photography as well as ultrasound elastography, and tissues were then harvested and looked at as well. Um, and so this shows native skin, and it's, again, a little hard to see on there, but you can see that it's complex. There are appendages in there. There's hair follicles and so on. The, just the scar that ultimately healed in on its own doesn't have any of that complexity to it in the area noted. And then the treated area does have a lot of that similar complexity. Um, and you can see that it's not just white, bland scar. There's more to it for sure. Um, and looking at it under the microscope histologically, the native skin and the AHSC look fairly similar as opposed to just all of that collagen that's built up in the scar itself. Um, and this uh, shows that uh, a lot of the complex architecture is similar as well in a similar way. And it looks at different proteins that are laminated via uh, in, uh, fluorescence, basically. So an AHSC case that uh, I was asked to present about, uh, or at least uh, was, uh, I was allowed to present on, 43-year-old female found unconscious in a burning house. She had about 75% mixed-depth burns. Uh, upper tre extremities were treated just with split-thickness skin graft, and the lower extremities treated with the skin TE. Um, and this shows that her you know, very significant burns, and this is post-excision uh, in the operating room. Um, comparison of the two donor sites, uh, large donor site of the split-thickness versus a very small um, and this is uh, about a week and a half to two weeks out, healed incision, basically, for the AHSC donor site. Um, and this shows the progression. It does seem to maybe heal a little bit slower than if we were to graft it by itself, still open spots on week four. But when you go back and look at, at week seven, looks very nice, already pigmenting very well, at three months uh, becoming more and more normal, and then showing some areas of hair regeneration um, and no... Uh, areas of seams that you often see with split thickness skin grafts. So the workflow is the patient arrives, um, it comes as an all encapsulated box, you harvest your full thickness uh, skin sample, and all of that is included in, in the kit as well. You package it up and send it, and it's uh, its own cooled chamber um, with its own postage. They receive it and they send back this uh, product that basically comes as a, a, a gel, so to speak that you can then spread on the wound. Um, larger wounds, you'd spread a little bit thinner. Smaller wounds are spread a little thicker. And then overlying non-adherent dressings are applied. And the uh, wound care regimen is developing as the technology and the experience with it is developing as well. So lastly, I'm going to talk about a bioengineered regenerative skin construct, a fully differentiated allogeneic skin substitute which is uh, polar. It has the barrier function of an epidermal layer along with fully stratified keratinocytes grown on a dermal layer. 
Um, and so it is polar as well. You put it down in the right, in the right orientation. It's not acutely rejected as it has no antigen-producing cells in its own, but it's rather replaced by the patient's own keratinocytes over the time as they become more capable of resurfacing and healing the wound area. Um, and this shows that, taken a piece, it, it looks like skin. It's got uh, all the layers of the epidermis as well as a uh, collagen-laden dermal layer. Um, the tissue itself is composed of these NIX cells, the near-diploid immortalized keratinocyte cell line S cells, um, and it's a consistent source of neonatal human epidermal progenitor cells, uh, similar to the HeLa cells that are used in cancer research. Um, and then they're grown on a collagen gel containing human dermal fibroblasts, again, without any antigenicity to them. Um, it uh, may tr be trimmed to fit the surface area. Cells are initially viable, but then they're replaced. And it's allogeneic, but doesn't seem to elicit any sort of immunologic response. And it can be meshed and secured using standard methods, sutures, staples. Um, and, and so it, even though we sort of call it at, as a take, like you would call a skin graft as 90% take, it doesn't really take. What it does is it accelerates the own natural healing of the patient's in what seems to be uh, basically deep partial thickness burns at this time. And so a phase 1B uh, randomized controlled study uh, was initiated. Um, and the hypothesis was that the stratigraph may reduce the need for autografting in deep partial thickness burns. And it was a safety, tolerability, and efficacy study, basically. Um, each patient, each uh, patient was their own control. So one area of a burn got autographed, the other area got stratigraphed, and the primary endpoints were wound healing. Um, so wound area requiring autograph by day 28, and then durable closure at, at three months. And then other secondary assessments included, of course, wound closure, cosmesis, uh, presence of allogeneic DNA, as well as any sort of infection that developed. And uh, three cohorts of 10 patients each, adults only. Um, and so this was published, uh, open-label perspective, randomized controlled study, looking at stratigraph skin versus uh, autografting. And they showed that in the, at day 28, the patients who received autograft all received autograft. However, none of the patients who received the stratigraft required autograft salvage, so to speak. Um, at month three, uh, durable closure in the first cohort and the third cohort, and one patient in cohort two, as I was told, had a dressing issue and lost a little bit of the stratigraph, which then healed primarily on its own later on. So not 100% not closure between sites at uh, three months, but pretty close. 93.1 uh, wound closure for all cohorts. Um, and then the POSIS scores. POSIS is a way to uh, evaluate the SCAR, patient observer SCAR assessment scale, which looks at six different parameters, um, and then the higher score, the worse it is. Um, looked at, at the different treatment sites as well as the different donor sites. And, of course, the, quote, stratigraph donor site, the dark blue, um, which was normal uninjured skin, weirdly enough, itself wasn't all back to normal. It wasn't rated as normal by them, but still had the best. But the uh, treatment site for uh, the stratigraph compared very well with autographed. BRSC-treated patients reported significantly less donor site pain, not surprisingly. Uh, and there was no allogeneic DNA detected in those patients treated at three months after obtaining small punch biopsies. Um, and adverse events were limited and uh, minor. So this led to phase three, of which I was one of the PIs um, on the study uh, at my institution, um, in the promotion of uh, thermal burns that contain intact dermal elements. Um, so this was a phase three open label 
randomized controlled multicenter trial, and it had similar, uh, it was looking at similar endpoints. Efficacy and safety in promoting Altala's skin tissue regeneration um, that contain intact dermal patients, and uh, dermal elements, excuse me, and 71 patients uh, were enrolled. It completed in April of 2019. Um, similar primary outcome measures, difference in percent treatment area of the stratograph treatment site and control autographed, and then that achieved durable closure at three months. Similar criteria, inclusion, exclusion criteria. And so the top line results, which were just released a few weeks ago, um, showed that the study met both co-primary endpoints with high statistical significance, that uh, stratigraph had significant autograph sparing capability as well as durable wound closure at three months. And so the company plans to submit a BLA license to the FDA early next year. Quick presentation. Um, 35-year-old male brought us a level two trauma after a can of some cooking oil, Pam or whatnot, fell onto a stove, didn't realize and exploded on him. So be careful in your kitchen. Um, this shows that he was about a 30% burn with some areas of, of uh, some deeper areas, um, but mainly deep partial thickness. And we applied autographed and stratigraphed on primarily that right upper extremity. So debrided, dressed, uh, we followed him as outpatient. He proved to have some deep areas. We took him to the operating room, excised down to intact dermis throughout that right arm. And the forearm received two-to-one mesh autographed, and the upper arm received stratigraphed. So a little bit higher uh, amount on the autograph than the stratigraphed. This is at one week out, and uh, autograph looks very well healed. Stratigraph looks like it's healing nicely. Two weeks out, almost doesn't look like anything happened. You can still tell that he received a skin graft on his forearm. Um, and six-month follow-up, 100% uh, of both areas were completely closed and healed. Um, and looking at his arm, you can barely tell that anything happened. So he did really well. So to sum it up, there have been lots of advances over the past several decades. And every time we make an advance, survivability, morbidity, mortality all improve as well. Um, our biggest morbidity now um, is, uh, are basically from when they heal and, and do well, and it's the hypertrophic scarring. So the idea of reducing the need of donor sites or even eliminating that need with a tissue product or with very small donor sites um, is very attractive because this is what our patients are dealing with. You know, decades ago, it was whether or not they were going to survive. Now it's how they're going to survive after they recover. And so this is something that Dr. Wolf um, out of Parkland published, that every time we've made an advance, outcomes have improved. Um, and as we keep making advances, we're not sure what the future holds, but I have a feeling that now that we're coming up with all these different ways of better excising, better evaluating, better treating with less donor site, our future is, is going up uh, almost exponentially.